A different anarcho-capitalist, Rothbard, said that if there was a button that would end the state, he'd push the button. I wouldn't push that button. I'm, in, I, I'm if you like, a conservative anarchist in the sense that I don't think you can rapidly change things. In order to get to what I'm describing, you would have to have a continuous transition in which more and more of the things that people are used to having government do, do got done privately. What I'm imagining is a period, is a gradual change in which, uh, on the one hand, people come to take less seriously the claims of the government to be special, and on the other hand, have more and more things be done uh, by private, private mechanisms. Welcome to the IA's YouTube channel. My name is Harrison Griffiths, and I'm communications officer here at the IA. Today, we will be in conversation with David Friedman a Professor Emeritus at Santa Clara University School of Law. Despite his academic career being dominated by economics and law, Dr. Friedman initially studied physics and chemistry, I believe I'm right. Undergraduate so. physics and chemistry, graduate uh, physics. It's quite the career. Um, today we will discuss your belief in a stateless society and how that might work uh, in a practical sense. Thank you very much for joining us today. Happy to be here. So you are an anarcho-capitalist. Yeah. Uh, to begin with, can you briefly outline what exactly that means and how it is differentiated from other strands of yeah. libertarianism? It means that I think the ideal society would have no government but would use the institutions of private property in exchange for purposes of coordination. So if you think about the general sort of libertarian uh, approach of having more things done on the market and fewer things done by government of privatizing things, it's carrying it all the way to privatizing the equivalent of the courts and the police. Yes. And it's a little odd, there, there's been a, there have been various people on the left in America in the last couple of years who've talked about abolishing the police. And as far as I know, none of them at all realized that England did not have police until well into the 19th century. Uh, that England in the 18th century, which I have a chapter on in my most recent book, had a legal system where it was up to individual citizens who had been the victims of crime to find out who had, who had done it and, and provide the evidence and get them convicted of something. Uh, I don't know if that system would be workable, but it's, people tend to have a very conservative view of the world in the sense that most people assume that however we're doing things now is the way it's always been done. Uh, and... Mostly it isn't true. Uh, but yeah, uh, there have been a fair number of stateless societies much less advanced than modern societies. Uh, and I've written about some of those in my book on legal systems very different from ours. Uh, but what I've sketched out in my first book, which was published by now about 50 years ago, uh, was what a stateless system might look like in a modern society. And to get into the, you know, straight to the, the weeds of the philosophy, libertarians and non-libertarians alike can at least understand, even if they don't necessarily support, the idea of the market providing services dominated by the state, like healthcare, education, transport, yep. something like that. But uh, law enforcement, and particularly law creation and arbitration, is a much more sticky one for people to get their heads around. So yes. can you explain how the market could perform that function and perform it better than the state currently does? Sure. Of course, 
In a very real sense, it happens already in the sense that if you think about a contract, for example, a contract is really a mini legal system between the two contracting parties agreeing on their rules, and lots of private organizations have rules that they're able to enforce. Uh, but what, I've, what I tried to sketch out was a society where there were private firms providing for their customers the service of rights enforcement so that uh, you're the customer of such a firm and that firm undertakes to prevent uh, you from being robbed or killed or have other bad things happen and if it does happen to go after the people who did it. Uh, and it also provides the service of settling disputes with people, uh, what civil law largely does, does for us. Uh, and then the issue that, that, that people raise is what if I'm the customer of one such rights enforcement agency and you're the customer of another and I think you've stolen my television set and you claim you haven't, does this result in a war between the two agencies, which would seem like a very unpleasant way of settling disputes. And the answer is that it's very unlikely because the agencies are profit-making companies, wars are very expensive, uh, if, if the, if, if the employees of my agency end up fighting the employee of your agency, both of them are going to have to raise the wages they pay to compensate for the hazards, and it makes much more sense for the two agencies to agree in advance on private arbitration. So I imagine a system where there are private firms, arbitration agencies, which are in effect courts with a legal system, and any pair of agencies that expect to have conflicts agree in advance which private court they will go to. And then the question that ought to occur to you is, since in this world there's no government, what enforces that agreement? And the answer is what enforces that agreement is that they're repeat players, what's sometimes described as the discipline of constant dealing, that my agency knows that if, when it loses, when its customer, when its client loses a case, it doesn't go along with, the, with that verdict, then the next time the other agency won't go along and they're back fighting each other and they'll lose their customers to some uh, less violently inclined competitor. So that's the basic model. Uh, and then the question is, where does the law come from? And the answer is that the law is being produced on the market, that the each arbitration agency wants to have legal rules and legal procedures that uh, the, enforce, the, the rights that, that the rights protection agency would like to, to buy, as it were. Each rights enforcement agency would like to buy legal rules their customers will like. So you have a you have a, a, a market competition in which the uh, private courts are trying to design legal systems and legal procedures that will appeal to individual customers. And you could argue that that's the equivalent of the modern system with politics, but the difference is that in the modern world, each individual voter knows that his vote has essentially no chance of changing anything. Whereas that same person, when he's buying a car, knows that which car he decides to buy will determine which car he gets. And in the system I'm describing, the individual knows that when he chooses which rights enforcement agency to be a customer of, he is choosing the legal rules they've negotiated, the legal rules agreed on by the, rights, by the private court that they use, and therefore he has an incentive to try to find out which one is best from his standpoint. And he's in a better position to find out which one is best because after all he can compare uh, how his cousin whose 
got a different agency reports what happened when he had a, a legal case of some sort. So it's certainly not perfect. Uh, there aren't any perfect institutions in the world. But I think you have, can expect to get something closer to, as it were, optimal legal rules than with political institutions. And so you could see how that type of system would work in solving you know, probably something like 80%, 85% of legal disputes, because within those legal disputes you will have uh, one or a combination of a pre-existing contract, that's open and shut. Something will have violated a rule on someone's established pre-existing property, open and shut. Uh, you will, will often have, uh, you know, if you and I had a dispute, for example, we might be rational enough to say, okay, we will submit to arbitration and yeah. sort this out. It's less costly and the outcomes will be better. Um, but there are people out there who are, well, some are literally psychopaths. Some people are just very prone to violence. And some people will, uh, will have, uh, through uh, economic incentives like poverty, for example, uh, have become used to using violence to uh, advance themselves forward. And that's unfortunate, but it is a reality. How can we as a society constrain those people who wouldn't necessarily conform but to they, this, to, sub, to submitting to I'm arbitration, sure to, to subscribing to a, a rights enforcement agency. Oh, why, 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 would I pay, why would I pay money to them? If, I don't care. If they haven't subscribed to a rights enforcement agency, then when they violate somebody's rights, his rights enforcement agency will come after them. Yes. That is the reason, part of the reason to subscribe to a rights enforcement agency is so that if there is a dispute, uh, you have somebody who's in whose interest it is to take your side. But then we have uh, another potential problem as well, in that uh, when it comes to the use of criminal justice, uh, we are talking about coercive obligations being put on the part of the alleged criminal, in this case, the alleged rights violator. And so they do have a, a, probably the only positive right that I think you can have in a free society, which is the right to you know, defence, right to trial by jury, for example. It's not right. I don't that, think you have a right to trial by jury. You have a right not to be punished for crimes you haven't committed. And there okay, are various yes. institutions one can try to use to prevent people from being punished for crimes they haven't committed. And I'm not sure why you would expect that the institutions created by the government will do a better job uh, of that than the private uh, institutions. Yeah, the, the, the right to trial by jury as a proxy for a rigorous due process that will prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you have done what you are alleged to have done before someone can take coercive action against you. Well, like, of course. Or that, unless that, your rights have been violated. But yeah, that, that, that doesn't describe the present system because civil law also uses coercion and civil law is not by beyond a reasonable doubt civil cases are decided by the preponderance of the evidence yes so in fact we already have two different systems in ours one of which has in theory at least the high standard of proof although in practice it really doesn't because I don't know the situation in the UK but at least in the US the overwhelming majority of criminal cases are settled by plea bargaining yes which means that even if the evidence is only good enough to give the prosecutor a 50% chance of winning his case, he can still get the defendant to agree to half the penalty, uh, as it were, uh, and, and, and cop a plea. So, so I don't think you have a system where, where there is no way that people can, can get, end up being punished for, for things they haven't done. But why would you expect, in my to begin with, if you think about what you are present paying in taxes, 
Again, I don't know the figures for the UK. I worked them out for the US a long time it's ago. It's higher than yours. <laughs> but what I was going to say is that I suspect if you worked it out, it would turn out that only a tiny fraction of that represented police and courts. So that uh, the cost of a rights enforcement agency, if you think of a private equivalent of police and courts, is probably going to be a few percent of the taxes you now pay. Yes. So I would expect that there would be very few people who could not uh, pay that. And given that, A, you want your rights protected, even if even criminals would like to, have the, to be protected against other criminals, and you would like to make sure that if somebody thinks you've committed a crime, there is someone on your side to, to argue for your side, I would have thought that essentially everybody would choose to be a customer of such an agency, and that then gives you the court procedure that that agency follows. And, and that, that raises another point that, you know, p people might critique your um, uh, your preferred system on, which is that through the market you are right. You will more likely have uh, an optimal level of law that it conforms with people's revealed preferences in the marketplace. Um, but the uh, one potential downside to having law on the market instead of by a legislature or a sort of formal system of common law that goes up in a pyramid towards one final decision maker. Uh, is that those decision makers are very separated from the parties who are actually bringing the case. Ideally, I mean, obviously, prosecutors, particularly in the US, are, you know, they basically run courts. But uh, ideally, the two parties are separated from the decision-making entity. So if you have law on the market and you have one side of a dispute who's accused of murder mm. and might be seriously on the hook for some mm. bad things happening mm. to them if they have indeed murdered this person... Uh, at that point, you may, as a, a person, think it's good that we have a rule against murder in society. Mm. Right now, mm. that ain't good for me. I do not want to get done for murder. Mm. Uh, so, and I'm also very wealthy. So I am willing to put literally everything I have behind this because I could die or I could go to jail for a very, very long time. Uh, when you have that different incentive structure of people participating mm. in the market and believing in the abstract that a rule might be good, but it's not good that it's applied to me now... Is it not better to have that sort of more separated legislative or common law I'm system not, to sure impose those laws? I'm not sure I understand. That is, the in the system I'm describing, uh, the point at which you've decided, at which you've determined what laws you're under is when you signed up with the Rights Enforcement Agency 15 years ago. Okay. You now got mad at somebody and, 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 and clubbed him with a a cane or something and killed him, yeah. uh, you don't have a way of, of revising the law after the fact. Yes. Because your agencies, which are themselves large firms, which have an incentive to provide the product their customers want, which is a predictable legal system, are not going to be willing to change it. Now, obviously, if you've got money, you can try to bribe witnesses, you can try to flee the country. There are lots of things you can do today. Exactly, yeah. But I don't see any particular reason why you would be in a position to... Uh, to change the law. One way, there's one of the questions that arises for a libertarian is whether the laws produced by this would be libertarian laws because it, nothing I have said requires that. And the basic answer is that libertarians believe that uh, liberty is, as it were, efficient, that it works. And a different way of putting it is that it is almost never the case that it is worth more to you to violate my rights than it is to me not to have my rights violated. And since ultimately it's the value to people of various things that uh, determines the market 
demand for different legal rules that you would expect as a general rule you're going to get legal rules which provide uh, for protecting people's rights. But there could be exceptions. You could certainly imagine a case where you're in a society where almost everybody believes that uh, heroin use or prostitution or something else is immoral and evil and they are willing to uh, pay a higher price to a rights enforcement agency that will uh, suppress those things or will try yes. to negotiate contracts that make those things illegal. That's not impossible. But of course, in that case, in a political system, you would also get those, those, those results. But I think you're less likely to get them in this system because uh, if you think about the heroin addict case, you would think that in at least some places, the addicts would be able to outbid the... Uh, Puritans, as it were, yes. uh, and similarly for the for the other cases, but but I don't think there are any institutions which guarantee that you will have the right laws. I think all I'm claiming is that the institutions I've described are likely to get you closer to the right laws than the institutions we now have. Yes, and and, and in you would want even if you concede, and it's very interesting that you do concede in machinery of freedom that. Uh, anarchy might not necessarily be libertarian. Other anarcho-capitalists are not so keen on exploring that in as much depth yeah. as you do. Um, but you would want uh, an anarcho-capitalist society to be as libertarian as possible, right? You believe yes. that this is a I mean, means to achieving that, that end. That it is a means to achieving that end, but other ends as well. And so would there be, if you were able to create uh, an anarchic system right now, if you were, had the ability to do that, would there be anything that you would do politically in order to try and ensure that it was I, as libertarian as possible. I, a civil constitution is something that's been that's been that's been mooted see, or I don't understand how you can have a constitution for a decentralized system. Uh, that merely establishes certain principles of the society that exists when it is brought about and, and what and what created. enforces these the, well, well this, is, this, this is the point. You would hope that the society that had created this stateless society and sort of broadly agreed or acquiesced to this very brief civil constitution but, would, would but, adhere but to, there, the, to the, the principles that, but, set out in But them, the right? society doesn't exist. It's not an actor. What you're looking at is a market and market outcomes. Yes. There isn't somebody who decides what the rules are. The question is trying to use economic analysis to figure out what's going to happen, not to specify it. It's, it, it isn't like... It isn't as if I can say, well, I've proposed it, and therefore, if you do it wrong, it's not what I proposed. That won't have very much effect, because I'm not going to be dictator. Yes. Uh, you are perfectly willing to say, so, that was real anarchy, and it didn't work. It could but, be. Yes. Or that was real anarchy, and it worked pretty well, but less well than I would like it to. That's entirely right. Yes. Yeah. Now, one of the interesting questions, which you haven't raised, but which I think people ought to think about, is what does it mean to say something is a government? Yes. That my rights enforcement agencies are using force to enforce laws... Uh, why are they not governments? And my answer, the answer I gave in the first edition of my book, is that a government is an agency of legitimized coercion. And I explore that in much more detail because I understood it much better by the time I wrote the third edition a few years ago, that if you think about the, an ordinary society, most people have views of what things other people aren't allowed to do to them. And one result is it's a sort of a commitment strategy where you are willing to bear unreasonable costs to stop people from doing certain things to you. So if somebody steals your kid's toy and goes running down the street, the toy only is only worth two pounds. If you go running after them and try to stop them and yell, stop thief, you know, 
they might fight you, you might trip and, and, and hurt yourself. It isn't worth the cost and you do it. Yes. When the government does the equivalent, you don't do it. So that what, the, what a government is, is an agency against which people drop the normal commitment strategies to defend their rights. And what is special about an anarchist system is that there is no such institution, that the uh, rights enforcement agencies are only doing the things that every individual is in principle allowed to do, namely threaten force against people who've used force against you, only they're doing it on behalf of their clients, not for themselves. Uh, this, this is one question I want to ask about the stability of an anarchic system, because unlike any proposal to reform the state, which requires the tacit consent acquiescence agreement of most of the population in order to create that change, uh, anarchy does require that, but it also requires the active participation of people in their own governance, right? Uh, well, in only of, in the... Do, do you actively participate in the automobile industry? Uh, no, but I mean in terms of defending their own rights, in terms of the, no, the governing institutions that no, exist. No, I, I would claim that the defending their own rights is happen something that happens in all societies, including this one, that, that large parts of the reason you don't get your rights violated at present have nothing to do with the government. It's because people know that if they do certain things to you, you'll fight them, in one, whether by suing them or by, by literally fighting or whatever. Yes. But, but I don't see why the anarchist system requires any special participation because the individual individuals are simply buying a service just the, the way you buy insurance or, or education for your kids or food or whatever else. So it's a market, not a political institution. Uh, but when it comes to law enforcement, for example, I know yeah. that before I was born, and unfortunately probably long after I die, the police will still be around. They will always be around to call. However good they are at their job is a completely different uh, idea, but they will still be around because they do have that monopoly that exists and I will still be taxed for that regardless of the decisions I particularly make. Yep. And people, as we've already discussed, have grown used to that, yes. even though it has not been the case for all of history, which we'll get onto uh, in a moment. Yep. Um, uh, people are used to the police just sort of being there yep. and that they are not exactly party to a transaction yes. that makes them be there. Right. Do you think that it would be a quick process if we but if we no, create a state of such, do you think it'd be a quick process for I, people to get used to the fact that no. they are now responsible to have someone to call? No, I think, I think that in order to get to what I'm describing, you would have to have a continuous transition in which more and more of the things that people are used to having government do, do got done privately. You already have private arbitration for many disputes. You already have private firms that install burglar alarms and cameras and various other things. Uh, so that what I'm imagining is a period is a gradual change in which, uh, on the one hand, people come to take less seriously the claims of the government to be special, and on the other hand, have more and more things be done. Uh, by private private mechanisms. Uh, so no, uh, a different anarcho-capitalist, Rothbard, said that if there was a button that would end the state, he'd push the button. I wouldn't push that button. I'm, in, I, I'm if you like, a conservative anarchist in the sense that I don't think you can rapidly change things. There was a blogger, Scott Alexander, who did a review of my book. Uh, and it was a generally sort of friendly but critical review, which is what you want. But his final comment was that he hoped that the anarchist system I described would be tried somewhere far from him. Right, and yes. I thought that was a perfectly reasonable view that one doesn't really know how new institutions will work and therefore it would be a mistake to try to create them instantly. 
Uh, and if you do work, if, 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 if things go the way I want them to, maybe it'll turn out I'm wrong. Yeah. And you, you as you say, you oppose Rothbard's radicalism. You uh, devote a whole chapter to opposing violent revolution to mm-hmm. bring this about. Um, but you, the, the sort of model you see is, as you say, the gradual privatisation of everything that imbues a culture of responsibility and privatisation and individual rights. Um, but the, the, the issue people might see with that is that, well, even if you wanted to privatise all of the state's functions up to the night watchman state, as it were, that's already proving a difficult enough task. Mm-hmm. The state is incentivised not, definitely not to shrink itself, in fact, to grow itself. Mm-hmm. Is there, you, I'm sure, you know, you can acknowledge the pitfalls of, trusting the state to liquidate itself, right? Um, do, do you think, how do you think that could actually be brought about? What pressure and incentive would they have to gradually privatise themselves out of existence? The desire to get re-elected. That is to say, if it is clear to most of the voters that uh, the government post office isn't working very well and there are three private post offices that are doing better, then I don't know what the current UK situation is, but in the US there are laws called the Private Express Statutes which basically prevent UPS from delivering the equivalent of first class mail, although they can do everything else. Or Lysander Spooner, for that matter. <laughs> that, yes. that, was, that was a little bit earlier, yeah. Uh, and so uh, if it becomes clear to people that the post office is doing a very bad job and that, that then it becomes politically popular to, to change that and to abolish that law. So I think, I don't think that, that I think it is true that there is a general tendency for states to grow and become more powerful, but I don't think it's an inevitable tendency. I don't think it's always happened. Uh, My impression is that England in the 19th century shifted to a somewhat less powerful state, somewhat less interventionist uh, for a while. Uh, So now the other thing, of course, not really on the same topic but related, is that you can also develop anarcho-capitalism online. That if you think about online interactions, uh, it's very hard to get a bullet through a T1 line. So in a sense, although you can defraud people, you can't really use force against them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that means that you do develop a society where the equivalent of government activity, where the courts uh, are really private mechanisms for settling disputes. That uh, eBay, for example, when you buy something, you get to comment on the the seller and later purchasers get to see those comments. That's the use of reputation as a way of substituting for the police, as it were, in enforcing things. And if you are buying something expensive and you have to inspect it, there are mechanisms where you can have it delivered to a middleman, yeah. uh, and only after you've checked it does he give it to you and you send the money to the, to the seller. So I think there are a variety of private institutions developing online, and if enough human activity shifts online, which may be happening, it's hard to be sure, then governments in effect become only landlords. That is, if you have a situation where your job is being done online remotely, where you do most of your shopping online, uh, you then have a situation where if the government whose territory in at the moment isn't treating you well, you can just move very easily. Uh, I don't know if anybody nowadays reads C. Northcott Parkinson, who was an English academic who was very good at writing humorous essays making serious points. And his most famous one is Parkinson's Law. 
And Parkinson's law, as you may know, has two statements. One version is work expands to fill the time available. Oh, yes. And the other version is the number of people employed by a bureaucracy increases at a constant rate, independent of whether the work to be done increases, decreases, or whether there's any work at all. Sounds like a joke until you look at his data. Yeah. Because he has figures for the onshore establishment of the British Navy during the time when England went from the greatest naval power in the world to barely able to beat Argentina, and the onshore establishment kept going up. And he has a similar figure for the colonial office during ah. the period when the empire vanished. But he has a different, he has a bunch of these essays, and there's a different one where he's talking about some other things. And he make, the, the bit that I like is that he says the productive people of the world have discovered by long and bitter experience that they will usually have to pay about 10% of their income to some gangster, feudal lord, or Department of Internal Revenue. It matters little what you call it. When the rates get higher than that, the Israelites start looking at the atlas. There are probably better places to be than Egypt. And I think he was too optimistic about the rate, but that the basic point is right that the ability of governments to extract resources from people is in part dependent on how easily people can move. Yes. And that I think one of the things that is improving in the world is that mobility is going up. That that's mostly due to online. It's also due to a fact of which we are the accidental beneficiaries, namely that England has become the world language, with the result that there are not everybody, every place, but a quite a large number of places where if you are fluent in English, you can live without learning. Better if you learn the local language, you don't have to. Yeah. Uh, so as, as those sorts of changes uh, happen, uh, hopefully governments become more and more required to actually provide what the customers want instead of uh, what the government wants. So those are all things that may happen, but I don't think there are any guarantees. Uh, the, anyway. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, that sort of brings us quite on quite nicely to immigration, which, as one might expect from a free market anarchist, you are, of course, in favour of open borders. But in, in the book, what I notice is that while a lot of this is very uh, analytical and mm. very, uh, in some ways, pragmatic in its analysis, and it's very open about yeah. the downsides, when you make the case for an open border, there is something uh, I sense a little bit more emotive in it. I don't know if I'm missing, you know, uh, about, about a, a real plea for the, uh, the importance well, and the, the emancipatory and economic potential of open borders. The, base, the basic argument is straightforward economics. It's yeah. the same argument that implies that, it's, that free trade is good. That, and I should say, I'm even more strongly in favor of migration after the last few days because I have come to the conclusion that if England had not had large-scale migration for the last 40 or 50 years, the country would by now have ground to a halt. Right. That is to say, as far as I can tell, almost all the Uber drivers are people who were born somewhere else. Yep. Uh, most of the small businesses seem to be being run by people who were born somewhere else. Now, London may be atypical. I've only seen London and Oxford on this trip, so maybe there are lots of English yeah, people doing London things London does, elsewhere. yeah, tend to have higher immigration, but, 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 but point but, still stands. But the much, general yes. impression is that England has benefited enormously from the inflow of productive, hard-working people who come from poor countries yes. and who see the opportunities that they get here as a reason to uh, be productive. I think there can be no serious doubt about that, and, and the economics of open borders are very clear. Um, but that, that does bring on to the problem that 
in the UK, we are kind of tearing ourselves apart politically and have been for the last 15 years about immigration, not necessarily because of the economics, although to some extent the taking our jobs mm. narrative still exists, but because of how uh, patterns of mass immigration can disrupt established cultural norms and perhaps undermine uh, trust in societies. Now, in a stateless society, you would want it to be as high a trust society yeah. as it could possibly be in the absence of, of one single mm -hmm. monopoly on force. Do you think that your advocacy for a very, uh, very liberal, open immigration policy, do you think it is possible that that could have a destabilizing effect that would be magnified in a stateless society? Well, we did run the experiment for the US, after all. The US had no serious restrict. well, with the exception of some restrictions on Chinese immigration in the late 19th century, the U.S. had no serious restrictions until the 1920s, and even then those restrictions did not apply to people coming from uh, the New World. Uh, they eventually did, but so, you know, maybe I'm, I'm prejudiced. This is my, my grandparents uh, were not born in, in the U.S., Indeed. Uh, and it seems to me that, it, as far as I can tell, the U.S. was quite successful in the early 20th century, which is when it was getting a million migrants a year into a population of 100 million, so about 1% of the population every year. Uh, so I don't see any particular reason why that would be the case. The, the main worry that I see people have, well, maybe not the main, but a main worry, is that people would come in in order to go on welfare. And in a stateless society, that's not an issue. And even, I suspect, in even as uh, much of a welfare state as the UK is at this point, my guess is that most of the people who come in from Nigeria or India can see better things to do than going on the dole. Yes, definitely. Um, particularly, uh, Indian immigrants are famously very hardworking, patriotic, and um, particularly keen on education and making sure the next generation mm -hmm. is better than the one that preceded it, which is very yeah. much the American story of immigration, yeah. isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, you could, you could definitely see it working. You don't have to convince me, but mm -hmm. it's a yeah, question that might trouble a fair few on the right in the UK. Um, the final question, the final bit of scrutiny I've got for the Friedmanite anarcho-capitalist mm -hmm. plan uh, is one that you have written very extensively about, which is externalities. And I'm particularly thinking the air, for example, the ultimate public good. Um, how would, uh, or how could a stateless society deal sure. with the problem of public good yep. externalities yep. like air? Very poorly. Yeah. That is to say, I have a chapter in Machinery on what I refer to as market failure on the market for law. And I think the right way of thinking of the term market failure is it's not about markets. Market failure describes situations where individually rational behavior doesn't produce group rational behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, so a sort of a famous example in London uh, a couple of hundred years ago is that it was individually rational to burn coal in order to heat your house, but the result was London fogs. Mm. And from the standpoint of any single individual, the amount of coal he burned had essentially almost no effect on the amount of fog, so it wasn't relevant to his decision, and yet all of them together would not do it. Yeah. And as far as I can tell, in a stateless society, there will be some things of that sort. And I don't think there are good mechanisms for dealing with them. But I don't think there are good mechanisms for dealing with them in our present society as well. Because if you think about it, the political system itself is shot through with market failure. That it is true that when I burn uh, coal uh, in London in the 19th century, I don't bear very much of the cost of the smog, but it's also true that if I 
elect the wrong person or vote for somebody who will make the wrong law, I bear essentially none, none of the decision, none of the cost. Mm. So if you think about applying the same standards for deciding, for looking at decision-making mechanisms to the political mechanisms, uh, I don't think they come out very well. And we uh, do have an international anarchy right now, don't we, which is causing a problem on this side. We, like, we in the UK are very committed to net zero. Are they so much in China and India? No. Yes, but it's also not clear if you should be. Uh, of that course, is to say, yes. My point is that you, you cannot trust the mechanisms that decide what the rules will be. And in fact, this is a, it's an interesting example that you have countries which are probably beneficiaries of climate change, the obvious ones being Canada and the Scandinavian countries, because warming is going to move climate temperatures towards the North Pole, which means that the effective area of, of Canada is going to increase a whole lot by the end of the century due to climate change. Yes. Uh, and yet they are doing expensive things in order to try to prevent climate change. Why? Because it's the popular thing to do. It makes for good rhetoric and we're saving the earth and so forth. And so, so I think my guess is that the things being done for dealing with that externality at the moment are probably doing more damage than good. The, the U.S., as you may know, it, the U.S. Uh, quite a while back put in rules requiring biofuels, requiring the conversion of maize to alcohol. Yes. Uh, and at the time it was originally put in, it was supposed to be a way of reducing uh, CO2 output. It turned out it didn't when people actually did the arithmetic that the amount of CO2 produced in the process of producing the maize and then converting it uh, was at least as much as would have been produced by burning the same, the, the corresponding amount of, of, of gasoline. We still have it. Yes. Uh, why do we still have it? Because farmers vote. Uh, the U.S. Uh, burn consumes, I think, about a third or a quarter of its entire crop of maize is turned into alcohol. That pushes up the price of maize. Uh, the U.S. is the world's largest producer of maize. So I think if I remember the numbers correctly, we are presently destroying as food about 15% of the world's supply of a food crop which I like to think of as America's contribution to world hunger. Yes. But we still do it. And, and that, it seems to me, is one example of market failure on the political market. Yes. So, no, I, I think there are a variety of ways in which my system will not produce the optimal results. I just think that it is less bad than any of the alternatives. Absolutely. And that ethanol one is a palpable example, given that the Iowa caucuses just happened to come around first in a presidential primary, Correct. which I believe is the biggest producer of, of maize and ethanol in the U.S., right? Or per square meter of land, at yeah, least, I that, think. That I won't swear to, but, but yeah. certainly uh, the particular politician who was pushing it has since confessed, uh, which I think is to his credit, yeah. that part of the reason he was pushing it was he wanted to get nominated for president, and Iowa is a farm state. And, yeah, it's often the way, isn't it? It's not often people just being evil. It is bad incentive structures, mm. and that's yep. you know, the important thing we need to have a little focus on. Um, beyond the anarcho-capitalism as as conceived by you, uh, in Machinery of Freedom, one of my favourite chapters is... Is William F. Buckley a contagious disease? Now, I remember when I first uh, properly read this, uh, I listened to it as an audio book as I was driving around delivering pizzas, and I pulled up outside a guy's house and I just heard chapter 18, Is William F. Buckley a contagious disease? And thought, hang on, what's going on here? Um, explain what you mean by that sure. and what you explain in the chapter. Sure. Buckley, a very long time ago, argued for uh, imprisoning heroin addicts on the grounds that drug addiction was really a contagious disease. Mm. And 
I, I think I was probably a college student at the time, and maybe a graduate student, and I wrote a piece responding to that, which, which he then responded to. Uh, and the point I made was that he was confusing uh, contagion with conversion, that a, the fact that somebody was a drug addict didn't make somebody else a drug addict. It might persuade someone else to be a drug addict. If you say your friend is using heroin, he thinks it's great, he really feels good with it, that might be a reason you would choose to do it. But that Buckley himself was in that sense a contagious disease, since he was arguing for certain things, mainly for conservative political views, I guess to some extent for Catholicism, because he was a Catholic. And that if drug addiction was a contagious disease, then William Buckley was also a contagious disease. And I should say he changed his mind eventually. Uh, I know on marijuana, and I think even on heroin, he eventually swung to being uh, against the laws against it. Yeah. But that was long after I had that argument with him. Yes, and I think that particular idea has well, still continues to have so much relevance, not just because the war on drugs very much still exists and is real when you see this rhetoric employed around it, but also you see that rhetoric employed on you know, people who oppose transgender rights or yes. uh, immigration, well, for the, example. The, they, they talk about these things as if they are contagions, yes. and it's not necessarily quite the case like the, typhoid. The particular area. case, I, I recently had a Substack post. I have a Substack which was, among other things, on gestational uh, surrogacy, on the arrangement in which if you have a, a, a couple where the woman for some reason can't bear a child because of some medical problem, they hire another woman, they take an egg from the wife, sperm from the husband, fertilize the egg, implant it in the womb of the surrogate, uh, and then end up with, a, with their baby, produced, incubated in somebody else's womb. Yes. And I had a piece on it. Somebody commenting on it uh, linked to an article someone else had had on it. And that article had a very long comment thread. And large, most of that comment thread was hostile. Uh, lo lots of it involved people trying to think up reasons to be against it. They were saying, well, maybe it's against the interest of the baby. Now, the baby is being brought up by his biological parents. Yes. Well, it's selling babies. Well, only in the sense in which you're selling farmers when you buy uh, food. And, uh, but, but there seemed to be a very strong sort of gut-level feeling that people doing something that, makes, that feels icky to you yes. should be stopped from doing it. Yeah, definitely. It's, um, that is, in many ways, sort of the essence, the fundamental, at least, emotional axis that lots of reactionary and conservative ideologies do function on, isn't it? I find that quite... Mm, I think H.L. Mencken defined a Puritan as somebody who was afraid that someone somewhere was happy. Yes, indeed. Uh, which is unfair, but it's a good line. Yes, it uh, certainly epitomizes so much of state and the right, doesn't it? Mm. Well, unfortunately, that is all we've got time for today. David Friedman, thank you very much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed this video. If you did, please give it a like and subscribe to the channel. Were you convinced by Dr. Friedman's argument for a stateless society? Let us know in the comments. You can also find a link to a copy of Machinery of Freedom on davidfriedman.com. Thank you very much for joining us.